Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I think we all took an extra long breath this morning when uh, we woke up and found out what had happened in Edmonton last night. Of course, the people in Edmonton probably knew a lot earlier than the rest of us because they lived through the uh, terror attack. And now the uh, investigation is underway in the Alberta capital. Police officer was stabbed. Four pedestrians were hit by uh, a U-Haul truck last night. 30-year-old Edmonton man is in custody. Police believe that he acted alone, but nobody is saying for sure. So a lot of investigating still to take place, and I understand that the chief, the Edmonton chief of police, will be holding a news conference later on or making a statement later on today. We have uh, guests to deal with the issue of terrorism and urban terrorism as we go through this hour, but we'll begin with uh, Julia Wong, Global News reporter who uh, joins us from Edmonton. Julia, thank you for taking the time. Where are you now and what have you been experiencing today? Well, over the last few hours, I've been at the site of where all the chaos ultimately ended. It's uh, just a, a block in downtown Edmonton where that U-Haul truck that you were mentioning earlier, after it had uh, struck a few pedestrians on the sidewalk, I'm at the site of where it ultimately flipped over onto its side, uh, where police managed to get to the man driving this vehicle and then arrested him, and he is now in police custody. And so we've been here all morning watching the investigation unfold. We've been here for several hours um, watching investigators. They've blocked off a large portion of this road. It's been shut down to traffic for quite some time, and I imagine it probably will be for quite some more time. Um, But what we've seen this morning is investigators approaching this van while it was still on its side, looking inside, looking underneath it, trying to, you know, pick up any details, um, looking at it with a a fine fine tooth, uh, comb tooth, if you um, imagine, and just trying to get any details they can, taking photos of this vehicle, taking copious notes, and we've seen throughout the morning them placing different pylons, evidence markers on the ground and, and snapping photos, not only of the truck, but of the, the scene around it, of the entire block that we have been on. And not too long ago, they finally flipped this vehicle back on its wheel, attached it to a tow truck. And sort of that's the situation that we are seeing right now. Julia, does it feel somewhat surreal? I mean, we've uh, we've heard the reports. We've seen the video of similar situations that have taken place in in Europe. But here you are in a Canadian city, in the capital city of, of Alberta, and it's it's happened there. Does it does it feel surreal that it that it's happened in Canada in the in the same sort of format that we've seen in the in in Europe? Yeah, in some respects, you know, everyone always says you never imagine that it can happen to you. It can, you can never imagine that will happen to your city. And that's sort of what a lot of Edmontonians are processing right now. The fact that something of this scale and magnitude has happened in our city and not just in one spot. Now, this is um, an attack that really wound its way through our city, starting in one section of it at a football game. And then that progressed into a police chase that wound its way through the city and then into downtown. So it's a large chunk of the city that has been impacted by this, by the folks who were at that stadium for a football game last night. So we're talking tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. to people who were wandering around the downtown area. And one of this is one of the busiest streets in Edmonton. So when that vehicle came down Jasper Avenue, which is what it's called, there were lots of people out and about. It was a nice night last night in Edmonton. And so the fact that it happened in very public, prolific spots is, 
it's something that everyone is digesting right now. And how are people uh, reacting? How are they adjusting? What are they saying? I mean, what's the emotional state of the people in that particular area? Yeah, so where we've been right now, so again, this is the site of where everything ultimately ended. It's actually just in front of a hotel. So we've seen lots of people coming out of the hotel curious about what's going on, um, some approaching the police tape, lots of them taking photos. And from where we have been stationed all morning, there have been people who haven't come as close as uh, the police tape, haven't come as close as we, where we've been situated all morning. It almost seems like they're a little hesitant to get too close to the crime scene, too close to where all the action ultimately unfolded and ended. And so it seems to be a sort of a mix of curious and, and hesitant, but everyone, you know, wants to know how and why this ended up happening in our city. And uh, the hows and the whys will be explained over time, and the chief of police will be holding a, either a news conference or making a statement later on today. Julia, thank you so much for the time. All right, thank you. Julia Wong from Global News, Global National, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We're joined now by Sergeant Mike Elliott, Vice President of the Alberta Federation of Police Associations. He's also a sergeant with the Edmonton Police Service. Sergeant Elliott, what's the mood on the police force in, 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 uh, in Edmonton today after the attack on one of your fellow officers? Well, uh, good morning, Roy. And uh, I just want to say, first and foremost, um, our thoughts and prayers go out to the uh, member involved and also to the uh, citizens of Edmonton who had to endure the uh, tragic events of uh, early last night. Um, for the members on the street, it's a lot of it, um, from, from what I can feel, is that there's a lot of uh, shock, um, total surprise, and uh, just, just like the citizens of Edmonton, but our country, the questions are being asked, why? And other questions are being raised about, well, who is this gentleman? Um, What's his background? Was he known to police? Were, was he on uh, being watched? And these are questions that um, we're still trying to seek out as a police agency, and also members of the public are trying to um, obtain the same information. Um, I understood earlier, I heard a report that he was known to police, but we also heard that he was displaying an ISIS flag during the terror attack. And... It leads a number of people to send emails, and uh, one of them was that the individual might not have been as closely watched as clearly has proven to be necessary. And then someone had a very unusual question, or maybe not so unusual, but unexpected, and that is, could somebody like this be actually an ISIS fighter who's returned to Canada? Well, these questions are... And there's validity to these questions because right now there's more questions than answers that we have. Right. I cannot confirm if... Um, this suspect that we have in custody has actually been known to police um, because uh, to give you uh, some insight, like the I, the registered owner of the vehicle, his um, identity was provided to the police so we can try to look for him. But the per person that we have in custody, I cannot confirm if that's indeed one and the same, if that's the registered owner of that vehicle is actually the person that we have in custody. And uh, I don't have that information to provide. And the answer to your second part, was he known to police? Uh, that I can answer. I cannot answer either. That's part of the ongoing investigation. And um, unfortunately, I, I can't divulge that uh, information. Sergeant Elliott, does this change anything in the way that policing has to be carried out? It, most officers now uh, patrol alone. Is it going to become necessary if, uh, if terror attacks continue? And we, uh, we're told by experts that they likely will. Uh, that it's going to become necessary for police officers to patrol in, in teams again. Well, it's 
then we got to realize too, this occurred at a, it was called a special duty event. And this is where um, police are actually hired to do work, special events such as hockey games, football games, et cetera. I can tell you from uh, working on the street standpoint, uh, we have an agreement with the, uh, our eminent police that we uh, put out a certain percentage of two person vehicles, uh, specifically on the night shift, what we call our midnight shift and late third watch is when a shift goes from, um, 5 p.m. until like 2, 3, or 4 in the morning, and especially uh, the midnight shift from 9 o'clock until 8 in the morning. The majority of vehicles that we put on the street are two-person vehicles, and that's just for officer safety alone. So we realize we're not ignorant to the fact that these occurrences are occurring, especially in Europe that we see, uh, unfortunately, on a regular basis here now. And um, I, I just think it was only a matter of time before something occurred, I'll say, in Western Canada. Uh, we know there's been arrests made in, in Ontario um, from people um, trying to like go overseas or trying to um, you know blow up uh, things within Toronto, for example. Um, so it it's unfortunate, but it doesn't shock me or surprise me that an event has unfolded here in Western Canada. When these events do take place, it of course affects the direct police community, the the nucleus of the police community directly, but it also affects the families of police officers tremendously and. And, and it changes, I, I think it changes, does it not change the dynamic of the police families? The question one and question two is, are, do you find that people in the community become more close to their police and, and more appreciative of the work that you're doing after an event like this? Uh, yeah, I, I have to agree with you, Roy, that the community does come apart because we just got to realize, too, that when events like these do occur, they're very rare and do not occur on a regular basis. And thank God for that. But when they do occur, we have to realize that we have to come together as a community because if, if we do not come together as a community, um, from my perspective, the, the people that do these uh, terrorist acts win because they set fear in the community and you mm-hmm. question when anyone goes out. And I know like the next time somebody, uh, um, the man and woman get, get in uniform, go out on the street, their families are going to be very suspicious and curious. Please be in contact with me. Let me know that you're okay. Uh, like my, myself, um, I had family and friends reach out to me because all they heard was Evan, the police officer, was attacked last night. And they, they were wondering, Mike, are you okay? And I can see this occurring much more often. But I can tell you the public support, even from like social media on Facebook, Twitter, etc., uh, has been overwhelming. And we've even had um, citizens um, bringing food and, and like cards into our uh, community station saying, thank you for what you do. And we stand together and that is what we need to ensure that you know we can move forward but yet we still have to be vigilant that these occurrences can and may occur again so we have to be vigilant about that all right sergeant elliot thank you so much for the time and uh, thank you for your service to your community to all of us Uh, thank you sir have a good day too bye-bye sergeant mike elliott vice president of the alberta federation of police associations and also a sergeant with the edmonton police service you're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. One of the, uh, one of the sidebars, it's almost inevitable that one of the sidebars when it comes to an act of terrorism is that politicians will get up and they'll start to mutter things that mean absolutely nothing. And it's generally something like, we're not going to be defeated, our values are not going to be uh, overthrown, our, our strength uh, will we'll pr- persevere. And, and people don't even listen any longer. I want to ask my next guest about that in a moment. Raheel Raza 
is an author, educator, public speaker. She's a consultant for interfaith and intercultural diversity. And her book is Their Jihad, Not My Jihad. Rahil, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to us today on the morning after the terror attack in Edmonton. You wrote an open letter to Canadians in 2015, and you expressed concern about terror attacks here in Canada. Was this the kind of attack that worried you? Of course it is the kind of attack, Roy. Thank you for having me on. I'm so frustrated. I've been listening to the news in the morning, and I hear law enforcement saying, uh, we weren't aware of this. And, you know, I want to say, what, what is it? Are you living in La La Land? The jihadists have long ago declared war in the West. How do we think that Canada is going to be immune? And you know, I've been saying this on your show and elsewhere, and we have been saying time and again that this is going to happen over and over again unless we do something about it. But, you know, it's the same old rhetoric that it's a lone wolf attack. There's no such thing as a lone wolf attack. Uh, you know, what is it going to take to, to wake us up to understand that they have declared war and that they're going to attack wherever they can? And we must be on alert. Uh, you know, I heard uh, someone say there's no need to panic. Yes, there is a need to panic. Uh, we need to be very aware that this is a serious problem, and it's not the first time it's happened in the West. Now they're doing copycat of the UK attacks where they can't get weapons, they're using vehicles, and so um, I'm, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, because what I'm not hearing is what systems are being put into place to thwart further attacks. What is being done is the community uh, standing up and saying we have a problem and we need to track where the, where the radicalization is coming from. Obviously, this person who was the perpetrator of this attack was uh, radicalized and you know someone has supported him he hasn't done this on his own so we need to talk about this but now we can't because it's considered islamophobia if you ask questions so you know we can go round and round in circles but i don't know what it's going to take to make us sit down and realize we have a problem and politicians invariably react to terror attacks by issuing statements like, we will not be intimidated, we will stand strong, and we will defend our democratic way of life. And it starts to sound just like repetitive babble. It has no impact or influence on the terrorists, and it does little to really persuade people who may be on the receiving end that something of significance is being done to stop the threat of terrorism. Of course, it's all politically correct, uh, correct gobbledygook. I mean, what are the politicians doing? They've been romancing the vote for so long that they can't see beyond their, you know, navel-gazing. They can't see what the problem is. And we, as uh, citizens, as, you know, mothers who are looking at the future of our next generations, are the ones who have to call out the problem. And it's not the first time we've been doing it. I mean, for someone to say that they were not expecting this would seem to be naive, bordering on ignorance, mm -hmm. because how can you be living in today's world and not be expecting that there are going to be more and more terrorist attacks because this is what they want to do? And uh, yes, they are attacking our values, but what are we doing about it? Nothing. Are we talking, well, are we talking about putting in systems? Now, look at the, the change that is coming in Europe. Switzerland is trying passing a law in which they are going to, saying that all the mosque sermons have to be, uh, you know, they have to look at them, and they have to be in the language of the country. In Germany, they have a law now that the mosque sermons have to be in German. 
Now, you know, we as Canadians love our freedoms and we love to talk about how important that is, I understand, but our lives are more important, right? So are we going to do something about, uh, you know, our, the attacks that are taking place or that are going to take place? And they are, unless we really, really do something, uh, something definitive, you know, talk about real solutions, not just keep on using the same terminology over and over again. Now, I wonder what they're waiting for. Well, this is what I had said years ago. Are we waiting for a serious attack? And, you know, God forbid that should happen. But the point is that it will happen because we are really asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happens with the Muslim communities is that they fall fall back into this victim ideology because they've been told that no matter what happens, you must be worried that there'll be Islamophobia. You know, we've got uh, M1 Motion 103. Uh, which is perpetuating this idea. I was in Ottawa and uh, giving uh, testimony about M103 just last week, and this is what, what what I said. How can we talk about the real problem? Because now you've got this set uh, written up that it's Islamophobia to question. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you know, people in Edmonton should they not be questioning where did this come from? How I think did it's this I think I think it's their responsibility to question. Of course we must. As Canadian citizens, yeah. we have every yeah. right as human beings to question the safety and security right. of our country. Rahil, I thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's hope. We should do more than not have to hope, but I suppose we have to hope that the people who have the opportunity to do something about this and to safeguard Canada will take the steps that are necessary and not just mouth platitudes. Always great to speak with you, Rahil. Thank you so much for the time. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I remember when uh, Colonel Steve Day was on this program, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's Special Forces um, Unit, the anti- uh, or the counterterrorism unit, that operates both within Canada and outside Canada. One of the very few um, counterterrorism units in the world that has domestic responsibilities and international responsibilities. And Colonel Day said, we were talking about politicians and their rather tepid reactions to uh, acts of terror that take place in our Western societies. Colonel Day said, uh, at times, politicians receive advice from people who are qualified to give them the advice, military people, um, intelligence, military intelligence people, um, perhaps counterterrorism units, and they don't listen. The politicians just, just don't. They don't listen. They see the world differently. Mubin Shaikh uh, is a former CSIS and RCMP operative. He's the author of Undercover Jihadi, and he's also a former supporter of uh, Extreme Jihad. It was after 9-11 that Mubin changed his way of viewing the world, and he's been on this program many times, and we've talked about all of that. Mubin, when you hear about a situation like, and thanks for joining us, when you when you hear of, uh, of, a, of a terror attack like Edmonton, does it surprise you any longer or or not? Well, I mean, um, it, it's, first of all, it's, thank you for having me. It's great. You've also had uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Day, he, uh, him and I are in touch frequently, and and he's right. His overall attitude towards this is that, look, we we have to really get pointed in our response and reaction uh, to these kinds of events. So me, I mean, you know, I my undercover years were, you know, 2004 to 2006, the Toronto 18 case. Nobody really thought, you know, Canada, Canada of all places, 
And then we kept hearing the message, look, Canada is not immune to attacks. Canada is not immune. So since then, you know, the Syrian war has kicked off, uh, the so-called Arab Spring, and all the upheavals that have come with it, and most especially, I mean, ISIS. At the end of 2014, uh, and mid-2014 is when ISIS declared its so-called caliphate. Shortly thereafter, uh, the now-dead spokesperson called on Westerners to, to commit these attacks in countries. And that's when we really started to see the uptick. Uh, 2015 was really bad. Um, almost, I think it was just over a thousand attacks, and then 2016 even more, 1,800. Now, by 2017, because we've been fighting them, the attacks have gone down. But that is not because of lack of planning and plotting on the parts of these groups, especially in Europe. I mean, what we are seeing, look, I don't mean to downplay, but it's a blip in the sense that it comes in succession of other attacks. Now, another aggravating factor to take into consideration is just two days ago, uh, Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, released you know his mixtape, basically, uh, with the usual stuff, references to scripture, foreign policy grievances, and called on its supporters to conduct these attacks. And their modus operandi has specifically been these low-tech attacks of get into a car, do a ramming. Now, in the case of Edmonton, you see what he did. He targeted a police officer. And the last time we saw an attack like this was uh, in Quebec with uh, Rouleau Couture, who, who struck down two soldiers. But what's, what's worse here is he got the U-Haul truck, and he was going to run over more people, which he tried to do. Four or five people, thank God, nobody got killed. But, but at least the police, and this really we have to give support to the Edmonton police, they found him right away, uh, you know, and they arrested him. They apprehended him live and, and ready for prosecution. Yeah, the reason that I asked you whether you were surprised uh, any longer is because I don't think many people are surprised. It's almost as though we're not necessarily waiting for them to happen, the terror attacks to take place, but we know they are going to take place. And there's a real concern about political leaders doing what they can do, not just what they ought to do, but what they can do to turn our societies more safe and uh, and do what needs to be done to create a more safe environment. Um when you so let me let me I guess go to part B of this. If if we're not surprised at uh, at these events taking place, then are they taking place because not enough is being done to preclude them from from taking place? We've talked a great deal and for a number of years now about radicalizing of of young men and young women. There's a lot of talk about it. I don't know how much is being undertaken to 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 counter the radicalizing. It just seems like. The, yeah, can, the counter-terrorism forces behind behind the curve, Mubin. Well, no, they're not. I mean, so there's two avenues to look at this. One is the military solution, and the other is the societal re- solution. So it just so happens that, uh, you know, the public state, Ministry of Public Safety put out a call for proposals for funding programs that actually deal with these issues, right? Giving money, you know, let's get out there, you know, get some kind of training happening. And this is only now going to be implemented. In the next few months, you'll see in the news cycle an announcement of you know grants being given for this kind of funding. It's totally in the sense that, I mean, look, an attack has happened. What do we do about it? Now, the military solution is one thing. Canada is one player among several other bigger players, right? We, we can't, you know, dominate everything. We can only manage in as much as we have the resources to do that. Um, so I think the forces side of things are on point. I mean, they have what they need. They need, you know, they know what needs to be done. Even at the local police level, there's been a lot of training already of, of these agencies. 
And it's unfortunate. It's not that, you know, even I wake up every day thinking like, oh, my God, where's the next attack happen? Right? And it's just conditioning. We're being conditioned to this because it keeps happening. Now, now how do we respond to this? Number one, you're not going to have zero attacks. You're not going to have 100% security. Not when, you know, there have been 16 years of wars plus in that region, you know, wars that give directly give rise to this displacement of people. Right now we're dealing with the consequences of that, right? It's, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. When you intervene, you get flagged left, right, and center. When you don't intervene and you allow these things to happen, now you bear the brunt of others' consequences. So we need, we need not to freak out, okay? We do need to be more vigilant. That means, you know, to be aware of your surroundings, where you are. If you do see erratic activity, know where to hide or where to respond or where to, to take cover, you know, concrete pillars. If you notice, uh, you know, the Invictus Games, you know, I went to the opening ceremony, you know, they had, uh, not to reveal uh, secret uh, security measures, but like dump trucks blocking avenues and roads. This is happening in Europe already, uh, in New York Times Square. Uh, they fill them up with dirt so that if there's a fire issue, you have the dirt to put out the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, look, they're attacking and we're responding, but we, we just can't freak out. We cannot fall into narratives that blame complete, you know, all community groups, because then we're imitating the mentality of extremists and terrorists who say that everyone is fair game. Now, my, my, qu- my, question, my question was, are we doing everything that we can do, should be doing, that's available to be done? And it just seems that we are, seems to me, that we're not. But let me ask you this. Watch well, can, the, I, can what, I just say, can I just say, in the UK, for example, yeah. they have foiled so many plots, okay, and we don't, this is the thing, we're not aware of them. Right. Because they're foiled plots, right? They're not headlines of so many people killed. Yeah, fair, fair they comment. They foiled so many plots, they would have had a 7-7 style attack, one a month. Imagine that? So, they're very stretched. They're very stretched, but they mm-hmm. are losing a lot of sleep to try to mitigate as much as possible these kinds of attacks. So, we have, do we have to budget more? Do we have to cre- create, a, you know, have more personnel available? What's, what's required? Absolutely, you do need more personnel. All right, so so there's the shortfall. Now, let me ask you this. What's the profile of the person who concerns you as a potential terrorist? Is it a returning ISIS fighter, or is it some kid who grew up in what would be described as a normal Canadian environment? Right. Well, first of all, there's no profile, okay? Uh, there, there are clusters of behaviors that are indicators. So these may include, now some, for example, stand by themselves. So a sudden change in religious dress, you know, they start to wear a hijab or grow a beard or wear a robe. That by itself is not an indicator. But if you add to that aggravating factors like uh, uh, keeping in peer groups with known extremists, narrow net- uh, rhetoric between the, the West and Islam, so, you know, these infidels, these infidels, okay, um, travel or, or attempted, tra- attempted travel to certain places, uh, when, when you mention the ISIS returnees, you, have, you also have to look at, you know, when they went, how long they were there, and what they did. So there, there are many, the threats are coming from all different sides. When you say a seemingly Canadian background, mm-hmm. remember, this is somebody who does not feel that they belong in society. They may look the part, it may, they may seem whatever, but you don't know what they're doing in the wee hours of night, right? Yeah, so we're we're not really aware of the the average person isn't aware of the depth of the problem, and and we clearly need to have more available to respond with and come back to the personnel and the, and the budgeting that is required. Mubin, I thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. Um, 
I know we're going to be talking again, and hopefully we'll be talking about something that has been done and that's effective. And as you say, we often don't know what's been done, but maybe we can find out, you know, find out something that's been done to, yeah. to stop an attack. And that makes people feel a little better that there actually is activity taking place to protect us. Yeah, that is a very, very good point, and I'll leave it with that. I mean, there are a lot of good things being done behind the scenes. Uh, you know, we have, even North America, we have so many Muslims here, very, very few attacks. So right. we're all in this together, one team, one fight. Thanks, Thank, man. Thanks for the time. Mubin Sheikh on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. His book is Undercover Jihadi. He's a former CSIS and RCMP operative. Let me go to Kirby Bourne, a reporter with our Chorus Radio station in Edmonton, 630 Chad, who's been holding on very patiently with all of that's going on. Kirby, thank you for the time. And what is going on like right now in the city of Edmonton? What, uh, where, where's the investigation stand? What's being said by police? Is there anything that's brand new and just breaking? There hasn't been any new information from police yet since the press conference at about 3 a.m. this morning. Um, we do have another one scheduled for 3 o'clock our time, so of course that's in about 2 hours and 15 minutes. I expect at that point we will learn more. Um, we do know the officer who was attacked last night is doing well. He's been released from hospital. Um, he has been identified. His name is not in front of me right now. I apologize, but um, he's doing well. He's released no update yet on the the uh, pedestrians who were struck downtown. But right now, it's still so early in this that it's hard to know exactly where we're at because police are still trying to sort all of this out themselves. So I expect we'll ha- we'll learn more in a few hours at that next police press conference. Is there a, a, a mood or a word that would describe the mood of the city of Edmonton today? As I drove in, people seemed to kind of be going about their day as usual. I stopped and got a coffee and asked kind of how everyone was doing in there. And they said they were all surprised, but Edmonton has kind of pulled together and all, helping all the people downtown last night and listening to police as they needed to when they were helping or when the police were responding last night. Edmonton kind of, like I said, we pulled together and we're, we're, we're working on this as best we can. It's, it's kind of a one day at a time kind of thing and it's still like i said so early that um it's it's life as normal for most people if you look at social media right now on my facebook everyone everyone's pretty shocked but everyone's saying they won't be scared um there's a rally planned for tonight a lot of people are planning on attending that so they refuse to kind of stay home and hide so that's that's good i guess for me at least it helps it helps us as well i agree kirby thank you so much for the time absolutely right my pleasure Kirby Bourne from 630 Chet, our chorus radio station in the Alberta capital. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. On the issue of terror and t- the terror attack in Edmonton, we're trying to get as many perspectives as we possibly can in this hour. We're talking about it. Scott Newark is with us, former federal and Ontario security advisor, post 9-11, former crown attorney, also a former senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety, he was also the executive director for the Canadian Police Association. Scott, when you, uh, when you, when you look at what happened, when you, when, when you put it into context of all of the other terror attacks that have taken place just in the last year, where are we as far as having some level of, I don't know if the word control is the right word, but having some, some, some uh, sense of, of, of that we're actually winning this or, or not? Where, where are we right now? Where do we stand? Um, I think probably um, moving towards accepting this as the reality. This is just the way it is. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, welcome to 2017, and frankly, uh, and and before that, this is the new reality that we're facing. Um, this this particular attack, I would say, it's not surprising, but uh, it um, alarms me and angers me. Uh, there were, in fact, uh, indicators uh, a couple of days ago. The uh, supposedly killed uh, leader of uh, ISIS al Baghdadi issued an audio statement that uh, once again called for these kinds of attacks on the uh, the homeland. Saturday night, by the way, was the end of Yom Kippur. The original attack site was at that football game, a mass population venue, which has been the uh, scene for other attacks. And they, by the, you, you may know that the uh, at, at that football game, there was a specific ceremony honoring our military, which has also been a designated uh, a subject target. We've seen this kind of thing with the use of the weapons and the directed attacks on military and law enforcement. Back in uh, 2014, Martin Rouleau and the attacks on the uh, the soldiers. So these features are not things that are completely coming out of sort of the blue on this stuff. It's how it is that we are going to, number one, identify these threats and recognizing what constitutes a threat, first of all, what are the, uh, the pre-indicators of it, and then secondly, what steps are in place operationally, legally, be able to do something so that we're not reacting after the fact. And it's that last portion of it that I think we're just uh, coming to grips with. Now, we hear a great deal, and I talked with Mubin Sheikh about this, we hear a great deal about not be having enough personnel to do what needs to be done to keep an eye on people or to intercede when we need to be able to intercede. Why don't we? we why don't we set money aside? Why, I, mean, I suppose I'm asking a, a rhetorical question, but why don't we do the things we need to do, take the steps we need to take to address the issues that have been identified as issues? Yeah, well, personally, I think there's an element of political correctness uh, involved here, and I read the you know, Prime Minister's statement about diversity is our strength. Um, time to grow up, Justin. Uh, actually, it's our uh, solidarity and unity in the values and principles that is our strength. And simply being different is not inherently itself something that gives us strength, okay? It's not that it, we aren't capable of having different um, religious and uh, racial and social and sexual groups, but it's that adherence to those common values and principles that says your ideology or your beliefs shouldn't result in this kind of thing happening. But the... the uh, Having the, uh, shall we say, political backbone to come out and actually say that seems to be missing. And each of these cases, and this is, this is one, and I, I happen to be, uh, you mentioned I was a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor in Alberta. I'm familiar with the Edmonton police. I've, I still have uh, many friends there, and I'll tell you something. They are one of the most sophisticated police services in Canada. Uh, I noted that the, uh, the chief in his remarks... Yeah, and Scott I, Scott, I have 20 seconds. I'm sorry, but that's all uh, I have. There needs to be an examination of the fact of this case to identify what we knew and if there were things that we could have been done, not as a finger-pointing exercise, but as a lessons-learned exercise. Always good talking to you, my friend. Thank Bye-bye. you. Scott Newark. We talked to seven people in the last 45 minutes or so. Uh, many perspectives and great guests, and we thank them for that. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So another week of uh, National Football League players' protests, another week of arm-locking and uh, kneeling at the time the National Anthem is played, and disrespect to the anthem, and disrespect to the flag. That's what it is. Now, we were going to be talking with, and we may still later in the hour, with Mary Frances Winters, 
who's the president and the founder of the Winters Group. She's an expert on diversity issues, and she has a lot to say about this issue. Um, She wasn't there when we called, so we may talk to her later in the hour. My friend Mark Yost is going to be with us. In about two minutes' time, the uh, business of sport columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And Mark has an interesting take on what's happening to the National Football League. Let's just read a couple of lines from Mary Francis' piece that they sent me, just so you have an idea of where she's coming from, if we do get her on the show later. It also gives you an opportunity to uh, either disagree or agree with what she said. Too much of the national discussion about NFL players kneeling during the national anthem has lost focus, writes um, Mary Francis Winters. We are confusing the real issue. This is not about the flag. It's about racial injustice. Owners have the right to fine players or fire players if players violate some rule that they have. However, the right to protest is one of the rights we enjoy as Americans, while many other countries do not. The NFL players love America as much as anybody else, but they're saying the country is flawed. They are influential and want to use that influence to impact policy. The Trump administration wants to make it about something else so they don't have to deal with the real issue. In history, remember that those who have protested have been criticized, and worse, while they were in the fray. Afterwards, though, we hold them up as heroes. Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela. People who are courageous and challenge the system are not always popular, but that is how change happens. For what's next, there are many things the NFL planners, owners, and frankly, all of us can do to continue the discussion about racial injustice. The NFL owners, the commissioner's office, and all sports leagues can join the more than 250 CEOs and work for diversity and inclusion to alleviate racial disparities. I think 70% of the National Football League players are African-American. And I have, a, I have a real issue with, with what's going on on the field. I, I take it very personally when an anthem is um, treated without respect and when a flag is treated without respect because I saw that happen to the Canadian flag and I heard it happen to the Canadian anthem. And I heard it in Quebec I heard it from Quebecers who were ardent separatists and would at Montreal Canadiens games either sit and or boo when O Canada was played. I heard a Quebec premier describe the Canadian flag as bits of red rag. That really troubles me. That's my feeling. You don't have to agree, but it's my feeling. But I want to read this to you as well. Um, Aaron Rodgers, one of the great players in the NFL a real icon, particularly for Green Bay Packers fans, Aaron Rodgers. Let me just find uh, the line here. I want to read this to you properly. Uh, Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers suffered a huge backlash after he called on Green Bay fans to join the team in protest by linking arms during the national anthem. So instead of that happening, what happened was a, a Twitter backlash. And here are some of the tweets that were directed toward Aaron Rodgers and from Packers fans. Um, Green Bay going to ask fans to join them in locking arms. Yeah, good luck with that, you dumb jocks. 
another one was um, Aaron Rodgers. Americans are already showing unity and tuning out the NFL. You can put that in your pipe and smoke it. We don't need your sanctimonious, self-righteous lectures or your phony, overpaid, ignorant kumbaya moment. Again, 34% of uh, NFL fans are telling Rasmussen polling that they're turning away from the National Football League. And this is after the ratings went down. Uh, Aaron Rodgers trying to get fans to join the Packers and disrespect the flag and anthem next week. What a loser. If Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers take a knee, I will no longer support or be a fan of Aaron Rodgers and the team. And on and on and on it goes. Uh, too busy keeping his show. Uh, just couldn't put your hand over your heart, could you, Aaron Rodgers? Was that too strenuous for you, you wuss? And that was followed uh, with too busy keeping his hand over his wallet. Tremendously disappointed with Aaron Rodgers. No hero to me anymore. Done with the Packers. On the Marines' message to Aaron Rodgers, I wore your jersey to a Super Bowl party a few years ago. Tomorrow I will burn your jersey. That's been happening. It happened uh, with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it's happened with other teams as well. Mark Yost joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. His book is Tailgating Sacks and Salary Caps, how the National Football League became the most influential uh, sports league in the world. Successful. Successful, young man. Was that what you, you said? Successful. All right. Not so much yeah. anymore. Not so much right now, huh? <laughs> Seriously, Mark, let's talk about how serious this is. Well, let's let's unpack it a little bit because there's a number of issues and you, you hit on most of them. First of all, the flag. Um, I think you're spot on on that. I think that, um, you know, we can admit that the country is flawed and has problems and has things it has to work on, but um, the, the, the flag ain't the time to do it, especially, you know, the thing that has bothered me the last two weeks is the games in London, that the NFL is increasingly playing games abroad, Mexico City, London. Okay, fine, protest in the United States if you want, but don't go to London and kneel for the national anthem. Uh, I would think the Brits would be especially uh, <laughs> um, disturbed by that, considering all our efforts for them in the 1940s. But uh, uh, so, um, but so there's that issue, and I think I think you're spot on. I, I, I think that the majority of fans are with you. I, I think the NFL is kind of shooting themselves in the foot on this, and 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 really, it, the the issue is this, right? The fans may agree with the players that, that there's issues regarding race and that sort of thing, but but the NFL, Sunday afternoon at, at noon Eastern or 1 o'clock Eastern, is not <clears throat> the time to discuss it. This is the time when Americans sit down and they want to tune out <clears throat> excuse me, the rest of the world, all the other problems <clears throat> that they talk about and face the rest of the week. This is our escape. This is our pastime. This is, in some ways, our, our passion. And the NFL, by, by disrupting that, they're, they're really, in terms of the business model, the fan base, all of that, I, I think they're really making a big mistake with this. So here's another part of the issue. You're in Houston now, right? Yes, sir. You live in Houston. You're a paramedic. In addition to being a great writer... Mark is a paramedic, also a firefighter. You have just witnessed tremendous acts of personal bravery, gallantry, generosity from your fellow Americans 
who've come from hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles away, driving their pickup trucks, pulling their boats, getting out into the waters where Houston previously was all streets, it is again now, but they drove long distances, risked their own safety, their own security, to go and help people they had no idea existed until they got there to, to help them. That, to me, speaks of what, it, what, it's, what a community is really all about. And it was, what did they call it? They called it the... Um, the, the, the Cajun Navy. That's right, the Cajun Navy. Because a lot of them came from, from Louisiana yeah. with their boats, their flat-bottom boats and their air boats and, and all that. And, and, and you know, you're, you're absolutely right about it being a great moment of showing what America and Americans are all about. I mean, as you said, I was a paramedic. I had hundreds of calls where I couldn't get to the residents. Um, I had to require, I had to rely on either the fire department or the police, and uh, and but more often than not, private citizens who were just there to help out. And I'd walk up, I we'd drive our ambulance as close as we could get to the house. We'd park it. We'd wade into the water, maybe knee deep, and there would be these boats, these private boats. And I'd walk up and I'd say, "Hey, the paramedic." I'm trying to get to this patient. Do you mind giving us a ride? And everybody said, get in. And the other important point, nobody ever asked me the color or the nationality or the sexual orientation of the people I was going to help. They, they just said, get in. We'll take you there. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My view, the NFL protest and fans turning their back is a replay of last November's presidential election. Elites being dismissed. Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Nobody says you have to agree. But I just see this as another example of a populist movement where people are saying enough. We don't care whether it's the elites in Washington or whether it's the elites in the NFL. They turned their backs on the elites last November, and they're turning their backs on the elites this fall in the United States. With me is Mark Yost, who writes on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal. Is there any value to what I just said? I think you're spot on. Uh, for a Canadian guy, you know, uh, uh, analyzing American politics and American culture, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think, you know, as I said before, I think there are a segment of the fans that agree with the players that there are issues of race and culture and class in this country that need to be addressed. But the anthem is not the place to do it. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's doing nothing, which is nothing. And then there's the anthem, protesting the anthem, which I think for a lot of people, even those people who agree with the players, it's, it's just over the top. It's, it's for lack of a better term, it's, it's like giving the middle finger to the whole country. And I just think it's too much for some people. And then you add in the fact that these are players making five, ten million dollars, um, and they're complaining about race and class, and it rings a little bit hollow for some people. But um, it, and, and you know the the NFL, I, I, I really think if they get behind this, and again, we'd like to think that a lot of this is about these lofty issues that we talk about on your show sometime race, class, culture, those sort of things. But for most fans, again, it's, 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 I've sat down here for three hours of escape, and now you're putting this stuff in my face. 
and I'm just going to turn off the TV. I'm going to yeah. go. I'm going to go watch baseball. I'm going to go watch hockey. And Mark, um, Mark, that's happening, right? I mean, they're losing significant numbers of viewers. Well, that story is a little bit overblown in that if you you and I are old enough to remember the dot com bubble from the late '90s, and everybody on Wall Street said, you know, oh, these returns are great. These 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 internet companies are going to keep growing and growing and growing. And then instead of instead of growing at 800 percent a quarter, they started growing at 25 percent a quarter, and everybody freaked out and said, "Oh my God, that's kind of what it is with the NFL." You still have to remember it is the big Kahuna in television, and and there's nobody that there's no possibility that in the next two to three years they're going to be just dethroned from that. I mean, but eventually you reach a saturation point. I mean, the NFL... Yeah, but their numbers are their numbers are down, and their numbers, the people are saying they're down because they're not watching because of what's happening on the field before the game starts. Well, but you also have to remember, Roy, that, that, that what happened to newspapers um, is, a, is happening to television. The, the cable model is is under extreme pressure. No, I, I, I get, I get that, Mark. But this all happened very quickly. You still there? Yeah, but but so so that's a factor in all of this. Is that the numbers are down modestly, but when you're used to year over year growth, and then they start to go down, people start to panic. Well, 21 percent. If if, if, if I'm not seconds. the number I saw was twenty one percent. Numbers down twenty one percent viewership. I. I don't think the numbers are down that much. And, and well, viewership, what, on TV? I mean, I can watch every NFL game on my cell phone now because mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a customer of a certain cell phone company, and that's one of the perks they offer. People are not, I mean, I mean, the Thursday night games are on Yahoo. Uh, so, so it's like the measurement is wrong because people are moving away from cable. People are moving away from broadcast television. That's, that's a factor of it. But what I'm saying is this: this is a this is a bigger threat because again, you're you're intruding into my recreational bubble where I go, or the average fan goes to just escape for three hours, watch my team, get angry about uh, my quarterback or my wide receiver instead of the. They've intruded upon that, and and that that is a huge mistake. I'm just looking at some numbers here. Um, yeah, so now, of course, now the the computer decides it's not going to cooperate. But the number I saw well, no, no, I, was – no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, Green Bay Packers victory over the Chicago Bears last night on Thursday Night Football marked a second win in a row for the Wisconsin team, blah, 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 blah. Um, viewership declined for the broadcaster in the league, having dropped 13% in the early metered market results from 2016. The final numbers proved a bit of an improvement in the end, a total of uh, 14.6 million viewers. But the numbers are down uh, just over 5 for Monday Night Football, just over 5% from 2016. But I've also seen numbers as high as 21%. Listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. He weighs both sides of the story and chooses what's right over what's wrong. More Roy Green on the Chorus Radio Network.
We'll go to your calls at 800-263-2428 in just a minute. Your view of the NFL players and their taking a knee or their linking arms in solidarity. I just want to read you a couple of emails, and I'll talk to Mark Yost for just a minute more as well. But here's an email that comes from John, and this is a sneaky way of calling me a racist. Roy, listening to your show and yet another guy who isn't impacted directly by the issues in question talks about how it isn't the time. It isn't the time for black men to talk about how they're endlessly targeted by society and figures of authority during NFL games. It isn't the time to talk about shootings in the aftermath of a shooting. It isn't the time to talk about climate change during one in 800 years climate events. Somehow there's always something a little too sacred to be disrespected when a black man wants to talk about these issues. Two points. When is it the time? And when it is the time, will there be anything like an engaged audience in this attention span fickle world? Thanks for listening. So what you've done here, John, is you've called me a racist. You know a damn thing about me. You don't listen to the, obviously don't listen to the show often enough to know that when black men in the United States have been killed by police in cases that were just horrific, we're the first ones, among the first ones to stand up. I don't need to defend myself to you. I'm just saying this is a sneaky way of firing the racist label. Give it up. I ain't buying so here's uh, an email from Karen. Um, hi, Roy. Thank you for continuing to stick up for country unity here and in the United States. Uh, from Florence, good day, Roy. So pleased you're back in Vancouver. Me too on CKNW. What I don't see with these wealthy players is any work in the black communities. Put your money where your mouth is. A white South African naturalized Canadian. I do not believe in injustice of any kind. And that is from Florence. Let me go back to my buddy Mark Yost for just a minute, ask him to summarize what he sees going on, and then we'll take some phone calls. Mark, what exactly is happening then? What's happening in the United States? Is what's happening in the NFL prior to the games a reflection of something that's happening, an undercurrent in the U.S.? What's going on? Well, it, it is a reflection of what's happening, and I hate to dispute that first emailer of yours, but... Let's be honest, it's, it's a false narrative. If you look at the FBI statistics, the Justice Department statistics, there is not, I repeat, not an epidemic of police shootings of minorities. It's some, some 96% of blacks in the United States who are shot every year are shot by other blacks, either other criminals or other family members, not by police. So let's get that out of the way. Um, uh, number two, at the end of the day, other than their fame, what do these guys really have to say? I mean, I, I kind of agree with your first emailer that, that we should listen. If, if we want to, we should listen to these guys. And any number of talk show hosts, TV hosts, have, to, have invited NFL players onto their shows to talk about these issues. And if they really care about it, why don't they put their money behind it? Why don't they, why don't they take their dues from the NFL Players Association donate to Black Lives Matter or whoever, you know, the Southern Poverty Leadership Center or whatever. And, 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 and I think, and the interesting thing, Roy, is I, I hate to stereotype, but I've, I, I've written about this for a long time, and I know who gets recruited to college and who plays in the NFL. And the bottom line is that the vast majority of these guys 
cannot string together an eloquent sentence. Um, and they can't be spokesmen. They may have a legitimate point to some degree, but they, they, they can't articulate themselves because they were passed through high school, they were passed through college, they, were, they took cake courses that were meant to falsely inflate their GPA, and then they were drafted by the NBA or the NFL. It, that, that, those are the facts. I know those to be the facts. Now, I and will so, say, I, I have to say this, that I've heard, and I listen very carefully to what people are saying. I'm not listening for eloquence. I'm listening to what they're saying and why they seem to be saying it. And I've heard some incredibly eloquent people who are NFL players, black and white, and I think there's a sense among a lot of fans that football players just, like you say, have been passed through the school system, whether they're white, whether they're black. And the expectation isn't that you're going to be hearing a tremendous amount of eloquence from them. But I've heard some extremely eloquent positions taken, but not on the issues that matter. Not on the issues that matter. The eloquent stations has, statements have to do with the league with salaries, with benefits, maybe with health issues like the concussions, but not on this stuff, not on these things that are, not on this issue of, of race and equality, Mark. No, and, and, and the point is, what other than his fame, what is an NFL running back going to bring to this issue that people who do this full-time uh, in Congress, in state government, in activist groups, what, what, what are they going to bring to this, and what are they going to say mm-hmm. that these other people haven't already said? And where were they before Colin Kaepernick? <laughs> well, they, they Seriously, they what were they doing? What were they saying? Did Colin did Kaepernick like, just wake them all up? Or, or what happened? Well, partially, but, you know, they're, they're, the other thing that your Canadian listeners may not understand is that... Don't talk down turn. to us. No, no, I'm not. There, but there was a turn last week. And, and, and really the massive protest, so we had like week one, week two, there were a handful of guys on each team that were kneeling, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but last week, the solidarity, that was not about the issues facing this country. That was about Donald Trump meddling in the NFL, mm-hmm. so much so that the owners even got involved. Now, I thought the Cowboys did a good job. Jerry Jones went out there. They hooked arms as a show of solidarity, not against the country, against Donald Trump. And then they stood for the national anthem. So they did their sort of unity thing before the anthem. Um, and but but this this really last week, if you weren't following American media and American politics really closely, last week this whole issue mor- morphed into the world against Donald Trump. All right. Now let me read you something before we go. And this is from the Daily Caller, as written by Chuck mm. Ross. CNN's John King reported on Sunday that NFL owners have conducted research supporting President Trump's claim that TV ratings have dropped because of players' protests during the national anthem. Quote, I'm told the owners have research clearly showing the president is right when he says the anthem uh, protests are one factor in a TV ratings drop, King said, during a broadcast Sunday morning. And since the president weighed in, the owners are now dealing with a surge in ticket holders' requests for refunds. Other sports leagues are closely watching what has happened in the NFL, King reported. Now, we also know that the NBA has sent out a letter to teams saying, stating, restating their policy. There will be respectful standing for the national anthem before games in the National Basketball Association. 
And that letter was sent out just a couple of days ago, from what I understand. Mark, we're going to talk another day. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Always good talking to you. Mark Yost writes for on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Special Forces units and Special Forces troops are part of the daily conversation. And maybe it has to do with ISIS. It has to do with the uh, the deployment of Special Forces units to go after the, the bad guys in the war on terror. There was a, a Special Forces mission that resulted in the largest single loss of Special Forces personnel in the United States in, uh, in one day, at one time. And it had to do with the helicopter mission called Extortion 17. The final mission of Extortion 17 is the book by Ed Darak. And uh, Ed joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. And I've been just reading with, with, with fascination so much of the information that, that has to do with this particular, this flight. 38 members of the, of the, um, of the Special Forces Unit or the Special, um, yeah, I guess it was the Special Forces Community in the United States on that particular flight. There, w- it, there was a lot of news about it at the time. There were a lot of speculation that because SEAL Team 6 members were on board and SEAL Team 6 had been involved in the killing of Osama bin Laden, that maybe this was some kind of quid pro quo for the death of bin Laden. And then there was less and less talk about this particular um, this particular flight, even though I thought at the time it it, it, it deserved more attention than it received. You've been writing about it. Now you've got the book out. Why did why the uh, why the book? What what caused you to focus on this particular mission? Well, thank you very much uh, to have me on. I, uh, I love that I'm on in Canada. I love Canada. It's a great country. And uh, but regarding the book, I uh, you know I've been covering the military for for many years. Uh, I've embedded in Afghanistan with the Marine Corps four times and in Iraq twice. Uh, and I started covering uh, the Colorado National Guard uh, here in Colorado. And that led me to a base that's up in the mountains that teaches high altitude uh, helicopter flight, um, heli- high altitude military helicopter aviation tactics. And one of the instructor pilots who had, who had worked there uh, was one of, actually one of the best helicopter pilots in uh, the American military Dave Carter, and he was one of the pilots, and so um, I, the I got an in sort of inside look based on some of the people he had worked with on what was actually going on here in the, here in the states. The the news reports were just uh, peppered with misinformation yeah. and uh, uh, misleading questions about what was going on. It, it was actually conventional forces that were flying the Navy SEALs. Uh, there were 15 members of SEAL Team 6. The actual name is Naval Special Warfare Development Group, but they're popularly known as SEAL Team 6. There is also uh, Special Operations Forces members of uh, the Air Force Special Operations Command, the 24th Tactics Squadron. There were eight Afghans on board, and there were some regular non-SEAL Team 6 Navy SEALs. Uh, and so there was, and, and of course, there were two Army um, pilots and three Army uh, crew members. And so there was just a lot of misinformation, a lot of crazy speculation. So let's talk. About, let's talk uh, about. Helicopter. Let's talk about what, what was going on. Why were they all on this particular? Uh, there were two two choppers, right? Uh, they they were the initial force. They were after a guy named uh, Kari Tahir. He was a, a 
intelligence reports have given them the name Lefty Grove. There, there's no specific significance to that name, or that they just come up with names. Uh, they had identified that he would be at a certain place in this uh, area called the Tangy Valley, a very strategically significant uh, swath, uh, corridor in Afghanistan and eastern Afghanistan, south of Kabul. Um, and he was trying to expand his power reach. He was a Pakistani-based insurgent. And the initial uh, force was uh, composed of U.S. Army Rangers, special operations personnel from the 75th Ranger Regiment, and Extortion 16 and Extortion 17. Two U.S. Army Siege 47D Chinooks inserted these guys. Uh, the strike force, which was about 52 men strong, uh, late in the night of uh, August 5th, 2011. They moved on to the target, and they experienced some resistance, some Apache gunships engaged, some some enemy fighters. And as they got closer to the compound, people began fleeing from that compound. So they decided to send in what's called an immediate reaction force. And that immediate reaction force was centered around Navy SEALs, so SEAL Team 6. Uh, and they all went on one helicopter, and that's because they didn't want to return to the same landing zone, number one. Number two, they didn't want to fly into, uh, fly the same route for safety reasons because, you know, after someone, they fly into a landing zone, enemy can take a position, and they wanted to form what's called a blocking position to the west of where the compound was. So they, they put all the troops in one helicopter so they could mass everybody on the ground quickly and minimize the exposure to any follow-on helicopters as they were coming into land, two insurgents unknown to uh, American or coalition personnel happened to be at the right place at the right time, and they didn't even know the helicopter was coming. They had no way they could know. Uh, they fired a couple volley shots uh, of RPGs, which is an unguided rocket, uh, unguided ballistic uh, weapon system. Um, they sh- insurgents shot at helicopters all the time in Afghanistan, but they only hit them a, a, a extremely small pers- you know, fraction of a percent, and this is one of the times they actually hit him, hit a rear rotor blade. And, so, so there was this uh, talk about this being a quid pro quo for the death of o- Osama bin Laden. Well, there's no way they could have known who was on there, and uh, insurgents try to sh- try to shoot down American helicopters all the time, regardless of recent history. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been shooting at helicopters with RPGs since the very beginning of the war. Uh, in 2005, uh, an insurgent shot down a Special Operations Army helicopter, call sign Turbine 33 during Operation Red Wings, that killed 16 all on board, all 16 on board. Um, if you, the WikiLeaks, uh, I don't know if you're probably familiar with that, you can do a search on all the, a lot of the documents that are in WikiLeaks are called sig- significant actions, SIG acts. And so every time something happened and enemy activity came down, uh, American and coalition forces would write these up. And I found in just three years, the reports of over 800 were almost 900 uh, RPG shots taken at helicopters. And during that time, during the entire uh, Afghan war, I think only four helicopters were ever shot down uh, with RPGs. It's just a, such a small percentage. Okay. So, so so that was just a rumor that people were circulating just because it sounded good to them. Well, it's just it's a very overly simplistic uh, storyline that evolves out of just rank ignorance that, uh, uh, you know, so the, the the enemy is trying to shoot at us. They they try they want to shoot. If they could shoot every single coalition helicopter down, they would do it. Yeah, uh, they, they're not motivated specifically by revenge. It's just 
they see a helicopter, they have an RPG, they think they can take the shot without being noticed, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And they, have, and they would have no idea who would be on board the helicopter. It's just another helicopter. So you have this Extortion 1-7 aircraft. It's making yep. its second flight, and it's got 38 people on board. And not just yep. people. We're talking about special forces, some of the most elite fighters in, in the U.S. Yep. military. And they're all about to yep. die on this, on, this, on this helicopter. And there was a lot well, said. I know that, but yeah. Yeah, there was a lot said and a lot written, uh, as you point, that, uh, that's, that was wrong. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There are still family members, Ed, uh, who every day will say and uh, told The Washington Times that they are convinced that the fix was in, that their the helicopter was targeted, was painted, if you will, for the, uh, for the Taliban and painted from within and that it was um, a revenge for Osama bin Laden's killing. And you say that that has been disproven, but the, the families insist. I suppose there's always going to be this, this um, give and take or this, this um, um, unwillingness to accept from the families that it was just two insurgents who got lucky with an RPG. Well, there's just really one family and one particular individual uh, who was making those claims, unfounded claims, and they don't really, those, those claims just really aren't being made anymore. That was a few years ago. Uh, there is a line of uh, some of the, the conspiracy theory stuff, which is just nonsense. Uh, that, 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 that's the conspiracy theory started up about how it was uh, because Obama uh, was supposedly a Muslim and he wanted to uh, avenge, uh, you know, bin Laden's killing. So for, I, it's, it's so convoluted and nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was the, the, the line of thinking that, you know, that somehow the Taliban were tipped off, but there would be no way that they would ever know um, that the helicopter was going to go be at that place at that time, flying that route at that altitude. And had they and, and had it been some sort of conspiracy theory, they wouldn't be using RPGs, which are unguided ballistic weapons. They would have used a surface-to-air, what's called a man pads, man portable air defense system, a, a infrared-seeking, heat-seeking missile. So there's there's always going to be people who you know the, the Loch Ness monster. You know, there's always going to be people insisting that that little teeny tiny dust speck in the picture is this you know prehistoric creature that lives in in this lake. So what's the take? What's the takeaway from your book? When when people read about this, this about this, this extortion one seven, this helicopter, and the loss of thirty eight lives of extremely well trained special mm-hmm. forces members, what's the takeaway? Yep. Well, it's a story of stories. It uh, brings to light the reality of modern war. Uh, one of the things that happened in the news uh, in the aftermath of the downing was there was just so much misinformation that's based on uh, just rank. Uh, you know, ignorance of how modern military operations are conducted. And that's what this book brings to light. It shows what this helicopter is doing, who the people were, why they were there, how the mission was planned, and what the aftermath was, and then how we struck back at those who are responsible. It definitively answers, you know, all the questions that anybody may have. And in so doing, you know, I don't spend very much time uh, identifying specifically the, uh, the conspiracy theories, but just having the entire story told all these individual stories rolled into the extortion one seven narrative just you you just with simply by having that you can understand how um you know modern wars happen how modern wars are are, you know undertaken and how such conspiracy theories if you're going to be concerned with those are just complete nonsense so how does how do special 
How do special forces units fit into modern warfare then? You know, we hear we hear snippets like the Canadian sniper who took out a, an mm-hmm. ISIS operative from 2.1 miles and we're aghast yeah. that this could happen. But we don't really know the, the, the larger picture. We're never brought into the, in, into, the, into, the, uh, into the larger dialogue or narrative. Well, well different, different types of military objectives require different types of uh, missions and that are conducted by different types of forces. You've got counterinsurgency, which was being undertaken in Afghanistan since around 2003, uh, which requires conventional forces. And then you've got special operations forces, which target some of these higher value target individuals. But as, as time has progressed, as this war has progressed, you see uh, conventional forces working more closely hand in hand with special operations forces. And that's one of the, that's one of the parts of the story that I really bring to light in this book is how all different ty- all different assets of a military and all different types of assets work together and one you know hand in hand. It used to not be that way, so there's a lot of overlap. Uh, for instance, in the Tangy Valley that night, they was uh, some of the most highly trained ground forces, special operations ground forces that the United States has, and the aviation the aviation support unit was also one of the most highly trained. They just didn't happen to be have special operations as part of their name. Mm-hmm. They're conventional forces, and they, they work hand-in-hand with them. So it's something that a lot of people don't, don't realize. So this is now over. Is, is it concluded uh, to the satisfaction of, of Congress and of the military? Has the, has the case been closed to the satisfaction of everyone? In my opinion, absolutely. Uh, there is a long report that, called the Colt Report. It's like over 1,000 pages long. And the conclusion was that everything, the, 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 the operation was conducted flawlessly. Uh, there were no mistakes made uh, on the ground or in the air. And it's just that they happened to be, these guys happened to get lucky. Uh, insurgent got a lucky shot. Uh, in, and I document this in the book. Um, while the conclusion is absolutely accurate, there were some details that they missed in the report that actually further bolstered their um, further bolstered their conclusion, although they didn't include them, but I had some of the source material that they used for, uh, to, to, to draft the report, and I included that in the book. So you can see how, you know, get even a, a more clear picture of what happened that night. Okay, and you have a connection to these, uh, these men because you served, or at least you were embedded with, uh, with Marines, so you have a, have, a, yep. have a connection with the family, with the military family. And I thank you very yeah. much for spending I mean, the time I- with us. The, uh, yep. the final Thank flight you. of Extortion 1-7. Thanks again. Final mission of Extortion 1-7. Thank you. Ed uh, Derek. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.